Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. I'd like to start today with a quote from our returning guest today, Joel Peterson, chairman of JetBlue, former chairman of the Hoover Institution, and an award-winning professor at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. But not from his new book, or maybe it is too, but we will get to that soon, but from his LinkedIn post from a few days ago called Surviving COVID and Other Disasters. And I quote, pandemics, wars, depressions, panics, natural disasters, each test our preparedness, ingenuity, and character. They invariably present leaders with choosing between bad and worse alternatives. And then Joel goes on to give three traits of the best crisis leaders, which we will get to in a couple of minutes. But first of all, Joel, welcome back. And boy, has the world changed since we, since we sat in the, the UBS studio in New York in January. Yeah, it's great to be with you again, Mitch. Even under yeah, these circumstances. Exactly. So first and most importantly, I, I guess we all ask this of everybody who we, we run into, or actually we don't run into anybody, we just talk to. But I hope you and your family are, are, are well and safe, because that's that's obviously the most important thing. And I trust everybody is doing okay out in, uh, are you in Palo Alto or are you in uh, Colorado? I'm in Salt Lake. So You're in Salt I'm Lake, in, that's right, Salt Lake. So okay. I, I bounce between... Uh, Utah, California, and New York, and now I'm, now I'm in Utah. Yeah. But that's job one, and every business has to figure out how to do that. The second thing, I think, is thinking about your brand. So you're going to emerge with the brand you deserve uh, based on how you behave during this period of time, and we want to make sure that we preserve those brand values. I think every leader is going to have to think about the covenant with customers. What is your promise, and did you fulfill it during this period of crisis. And then the third thing is to model what I call winning mindsets. And this means radiating attitudes that will actually help people get through it. And the first one I think is confronting reality, not denying the truth, being transparent, letting people know what, what's going on. The second one is kind of remaining optimistic. I think even in dark times, there are great things that are happening. I always say that it's always sunny above the clouds. The third thing is to be action-oriented. And that means making timely decisions. You don't have perfect information, so you're going to make some mistakes. And that means going along with that, there are no recriminations. And then finally, I think you have to communicate lavishly. That means reporting on bad news as well as good news, talking before, during, and after events, and then exercising a modicum, an increased measure of kindness. There are people who are vulnerable, who are suffering, and I think reaching out to them and making sure that you're doing that during this uh, period of crisis is really critical. So I think the great entrepreneurial leaders are going to be aware of all those things. Absolutely. So another thing that has changed dramatically in your life as a professor at Stanford is that you had to learn to teach virtual business school. I think the audience would love to hear a little bit what that's been like for you uh, as far as a learning curve with technology. Had you prepared for this? Was this something that Stanford had already had in place? 
and kind of what was the impact on your students, you know, advantages, disadvantages? Well, let me separate Stanford from me. Stanford is really one of the leaders in online learning. They've been pioneers in this kind of thing. On the other hand, they're very good at in-classroom kinds of participant teaching by the Socratic method, one-on-one relationships with students. So I was really of that old school. I had never done anything uh, with the, the technology. So my learning curve was absolutely vertical. I found the first class that I taught was really clumsy and awkward and difficult. And uh, I would tell a joke and, and speaking into a screen of a bunch of silhouettes and no laughter. And I couldn't read the audience. And I, I found myself at sea. But I've gotten better over time. I've learned how to use a few of the tools, polls, breakout groups, whiteboards. Uh, and I've just learned to have a relationship with this screen that I know they're real flesh and blood humans behind, but it's it was hard initially to imagine it. I would think so. And and as far as from the student's perspective, I mean, there, there've been online courses in, in colleges for, for a number of years, both of my kids, when they went through school and over the last eight to 10 years, both had an online course here or there that they had at University of Maryland or Penn State and Stanford, I know has done, you know, certainly done plenty of that. But in, in a class like yours, I would imagine there's some things that you just can't get through the screen. No, absolutely. There's a lot. So I actually worked with a guy who teaches at Harvard, a very generous professor who'd done it the prior quarter a little bit. And he basically said to me, your teaching plan needs to be cut. If you can get 70% of it done, you're doing really well. And he said, I was unhappy until I learned that and, and basically cut back. And I felt the same way, that I was racing, that I couldn't get through everything. I was frustrated. And once I cut it back, and, and it forced me to think about what is the core? And that doesn't make things worse necessarily. So it forced me to kind of pare things down and realize they're only a, an idea or two that are going to get across. And so, you know, you develop new skills. Absolutely. And, and clearly you have. And I guess the, the semester winding down at this point. No, we're actually on the quarter system at Stanford. So we're really just a few weeks into the uh, spring quarter, which goes until early June. Oh, okay. So you are, uh, you're keeping busy in doing that. How many, just, just out of curiosity, typically how many are on these uh, daily calls that you're doing, your, your classes? Yeah, they're not daily, but in my class, we limit it to 45 students. There's typically a waiting list that's two or three times that long. But this is a class that is highly intensive in terms of the Socratic method, in terms of role playing, in terms of sort of hands-on. So we've limited uh, the class to 45 students. Hmm. Okay. Well, like I said, you're learning a whole new a whole new world like all of us at this point. So last week, just coincidentally, you dropped your new book. And it's it's amazing how certain books that come out at certain times are the absolute right books that are out there. And I'll talk about a Churchill book in a, in a few minutes that I think fits that that as well. But your new book, which for everybody at home, is called Entrepreneurial Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others, and Running Stuff. And it's published by HarperCollins. And I remember when we spoke in January, you were just completing the book and you were kind of shocked, I think, that they kept the running stuff part. <laughs> well, I was disappointed the whole book wasn't called Running Stuff. That was my choice. And they went out and market tested it. 
and came back and said, you know, it'll attract joggers, but maybe that's it. So we had to change the title. <laughs> well, that that's true. That's true. Although right now, that's about all that I see are joggers. So let's talk about the term entrepreneurial leadership. What do you really mean by that term? So entrepreneurial leaders are those who can create durable change. And they're what I call five-tool players. They have skills that go beyond being an entrepreneur. You know, entrepreneurs can light fires. They can innovate. They can start things. But often they're unable to keep the fire burning. They're unable to turn a, a campfire into a brush fire. So the entrepreneurial leader really has elements of these other tools or recognizes that they're vital and hires a team that completes the set of tools that allows for entrepreneurial leadership, or in other words, creating durable change. Hmm. Okay. And the running stuff part, where, you know, as you said, you really wanted that part of the title. What was the main impact of, of those words? Well, so to me, one of the things that you have to do to be an effective leader is you have to execute. You have to deliver on promises. And there are better and worse ways to run meetings, to negotiate, to sell, to deal with adversity. So I picked the 10 things that every entrepreneurial leader has to do. And I said, what are the checklists? What are the mindsets that you need? You know, and I think about uh, JetBlue's pilots. They have a checklist. They go over every single time they fly. They may have flown for 25 years, and yet they go over the checklist and make sure that everything is is set. Well, I think there are a bunch of rules and mindsets for dealing with change, making decisions under conditions of uncertainty, handling adversity, managing growth, as I mentioned, selling, negotiating, these very common things that every entrepreneurial leader has to do. So I wanted to give people the mindsets and the checklists that real entrepreneurial leaders use and, and just give them the very best tools so they could go into this next phase. You know, I, for a while, Mitch, I thought this book's timing is really not very good. But the more that I've thought about it, the more I've realized that everybody's going to have to be an entrepreneurial leader. We're going to have to reimagine our relationships, our businesses, and having a set of checklists and tools might be really quite valuable to lots of people. Oh, extremely valuable. And I want to get, I want to get more into that because I think that is, that, is, that is really, really critical. Over your many years of observing leaders and leading plenty of people yourself, I know that you've learned to recognize different styles of leadership. And I thought this might be a good time for you to kind of take us through what you call the five styles of leadership. Yeah. So I've already mentioned the entrepreneur who can innovate. There's this thing that they call the founder's trap where a lot of times the person who's able to innovate, get something started, can't keep it going. And a lot of companies fail, in fact, because of the founder. They just, they don't have the skills to go to the next level, to create durable change, in other words. Some large organizations that are around for a long time have presiders who are brilliant at just sort of maintaining the status quo. They can cut ribbons, kiss babies, make everybody feel good, communicate, whatever. So I'm not dismissing the presider, but I think that's only one of the skills. So the presider is, a, is another kind. Another is the manager. Management-intensive leaders uh, deal with complexity. They're brilliant at dealing with complexity, whereas leaders kind of deal with change. So leaders are the ones that are, are managing the change at the edges. Managers are managing all the complexity underneath that. But managerial leadership is really important. Another kind is administrative, and administrators deal with policy matters. They understand the second and third order consequences of decisions, and they're quite good at creating policy. And then the final kind are sort of the politicians, 
And politicians understand power. In our world, they know how to get reelected by using that power, but fundamentally, they know how to punish enemies and reward friends. And so there is a certain management of power that needs to happen in every set of relationships. So there's a political element. So if you add all five of those up, you really have a complete leader. And that's what I call the entrepreneurial leader. If you have that complete skill set or you know how to bring it onto a team, you're able to create durable change. And we need more of those kinds of entrepreneurial leaders. Without a doubt. And, and I love how you refer to them as a five-tool player for any baseball fans out there. And I know there are many of us that are really missing the sports. But as I say to my 93-year-old mom every day, who's the world's biggest Met fan, hey, mom, the Mets are still undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that term, a five-tool player. I mean, because it's really, that fits perfectly, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you really think about the great baseball players, the all-time greats, I think Willie Mays is the greatest uh, five-tool player ever. And, you know, they can, they can hit for power, hit for average, run, field, and throw. And they can do all of those superbly. And so that's, uh, that's the idea, is that the entrepreneurial leader is a five-tool player. So that's the idea. Yeah, it's very, very rare if you think in baseball. I could just off the top of my head, Roberto Clemente would be the only other name that would probably come to mind and that, that I that I got to see play that would fit that. Um, you know, I love that you quoted Churchill's October 1941 speech in, also in a, in, in a recent blog on LinkedIn. And folks, if you aren't following Joel Peterson on LinkedIn, you should. The content that he's been putting out lately has just been fantastic, and we need to see things like this. Coincidentally, I'm actually devouring Eric Larson's new book about those days, which is called The Splendor and the Vile, which are really about the early days of, of, of World War II and, and how he led Britain during that period. I'd love if you could just read us that quote, if you remember, and, and tell our listeners kind of how that is helping you during our global pandemic nightmare. It's funny that you mentioned reading that. That's one of the three Churchill biographies I've read during this period. One of them I'd read before, but um, you know, I, I think he's really a great way to think about how do you get through these tougher times. So in any event, by October 1941, they were just coming through the Battle of Britain. And they were outnumbered. The Luftwaffe was going to destroy the Brits and bring them to their knees. And they were kind of all alone in the world. So he went to speak to the Harrow School where he'd gone to school. You know, a lot of these uh, young British aristocrats went to either the Harrow School or Eton. In any event, he went to Harrow. He wrote, do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest days our country has ever lived. Now, nobody could imagine that at the time. And then he gave this advice to the young Herovians. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Mm. And then he went on to use that never, 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 an, an, another very famous time in his life and in, in, in his speech. And, and that is so true. And, and that is a way that I think all of us, without getting political at all, governors, leaders of all, of all shapes, sizes, and forms need to be thinking about every day to lead us through this absolute nightmare. So Americans are persistent. They're creative. They're hardworking. They're innovative. So I think our natural instincts lead us not to give up. you know. And so I think having a leader tap into that and help us envision the future, reimagine what it is we're going to be about 
is really what we need now. And every one of us can become that in our organizations, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, whatever. I think it's, it, it, in effect, it is entrepreneurial leadership. Absolutely. And, and I mean, this is a minor thing, just that the fact that the NFL draft happened last week and Roger Goodell, I thought, did a really good job in, in leading us in his basement through, through that strange, strange uh, cycle. But it was important. And whether it's you know something Bruce Springsteen, as you know, one of my favorites here in New Jersey, has done a number of things. These little forms of leadership that, that pop up make, make all the difference in the world. In your book, you talk about the success of every entrepreneurial leader depends on securing the best possible team. So now we've got a situation with, I don't know, 22, 26 million people unemployed, might even be more. What skills do you think will matter most to companies that are going to be putting a team back together? Well, people talk about the soft skills and they talk about technical skills. And I think that's a little bit of an artificial division and a little bit stark, but we have both of those now on the bench. And I think we can make sure we hire both of those. My experience is if someone has only technical skills, ultimately the wheels come off. I look for people with whatever skills and abilities they need to do the job, but also this set of interpersonal skills, the ability to carry on a thoughtful conversation, to listen and capture what others are saying, to sell, to bring people together. Now, I think employers have a, a large group of people to choose from. On the other hand, I do think a lot of people have sort of been furloughed. I think a lot of employers would like to bring up many of them back. I think if we can figure out a way to get back to work, many of them will drift quickly back into slots where they can be highly productive again. Yeah, I certainly hope so. We, we've seen a great great amount of that. Both my, my wife and daughter are in the journalism business, and they're, they're fine, but uh, the furloughs and that have happened in that world uh, have just been, well, in all worlds, but that particularly, uh, which was already struggling. We can get into the retail world, too, and malls and everything else, but hopefully the people that are being furloughed will, will have a chance to, to come back. So speaking of employment, I was thinking about some common mistakes that leaders make in the process of recruiting and hiring talent. And, you know, since I have you here in what probably, I mean, I can't imagine a worst economic condition in our lives. We've been through a lot. We've, we've lived through so many different things, as my 93-year-old mom talks about, you know, depression on through. But this is certainly something in my life, you know, we've had horrible situations and horrible wars and, and 9-11 and, and, and all kinds of natural disasters. But this, this is sort of kind of risen to the top. But what are you telling your students at Stanford that are asking you about finding work when they graduate? Because I know I've heard from a lot of my friends' kids recently who are really concerned that they're graduating, kind of like what happened in 2008. What are you saying, you know, certainly for recent grads, I know you're dealing with MBAs that, you know, certainly may have a crowded field out there. What kind of advice can you give them? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is uh, don't dismiss selling as something. Every business needs revenue and maybe now more than ever. And I think the closer you can work to the customer, the more you're going to really understand the market. And I think a lot of people think selling is about pushing a product. And my word, they've gone uh, to two years of business school and paid a fortune to learn all these other things. Why would they want to go into sales? My experience is that selling is actually solving problems. It's listening to what people's needs are and coming up with a solution. And if you think about selling that way, it's actually kind of an ennobling 
things. So I, I would say, uh, don't dismiss selling as something to do. The other thing that I always tell them is find a mentor. You know, they're really precious. They're valuable. You should almost be willing to pay somebody to be your mentor. But if you can work with somebody who will help open doors for you, will teach you something, will look out for you, it's precious. And so you may have a better opportunity to find a mentor. So I think those are the two things. But then there's always all the other things about working hard, about, uh, you know, dealing well with other people. I mean, there's all kinds of good advice. But I think the two that people don't expect is don't dismiss selling and think hard about how you can find a mentor. And with you know the technology today, and I'll, I'll use LinkedIn again, I don't have any interest in LinkedIn other than I've been with them from day one. And I do have uh, a number of friends that have worked there and, and, and just a big fan. I, I just think that they're is so many opportunities within the LinkedIn universe if you are using it right. And again, a lot of people, you know, half the people that are there looking for jobs and the other half of people looking for customers or clients or, or connections to continue their networking. So by doing that right, that makes a big difference. And actually, I think next week we have uh, two gentlemen who are at LinkedIn, one, one who's been there for many, many years and one who does a lot of the training are going to talk about that a, a little bit more. You basically say that leadership comes down to having good judgment, the ability to predict outcomes, the ability to persuade others both inside and outside the organization. And, and the formula that you've put together in this book, which is absolutely remarkable. And please, folks, we'll link to it. Go on Amazon. If you are looking for your college grad book, there, there couldn't be a better timing than this particular book, which is out now. And you come up with these four distinct categories, building trust, recruiting a great team, agreeing upon a mission and executing with rigor. And I guess that's what you found throughout all of your career, I assume. Absolutely. And what I wanted to do is boil it down to what are the foundational elements, the, just the spare things that you have to do. And to me, the notion of building this relationship of trust, becoming a trustworthy leader and building a high trust organization as the currency within which you get things done. Then secondly, agreeing upon a mission, not having a mission statement that you post in the boardroom and everybody becomes cynical about it, but actually engaging others to decide which peak are we going to climb, agreeing on that so that you all own the mission. And then the third thing is assembling a great team. And that's a function of sourcing the right people, interviewing them, coaching them, promoting them, demoting them, and ultimately letting go the ones that shouldn't be on the field. And then finally, executing, delivering on promises, on time, on budget deliverables. And that's a whole series of things. So I, I tried to boil it into these four simple notions that aren't that easy to execute on. But if you understand what fundamentally makes up a great organization, a winning team, then you can actually achieve durable change and an enduring company. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'm going to borrow from Tim Ferriss, who does this uh, in, in his tribe of mentors, and I've been adding this uh, to the show recently. And I don't remember, I may have asked you this in January, but maybe I think we're all looking at the world a little differently now. So if you were given the opportunity to have this giant billboard that all of America could see, you know, this big billboard that's out there, could be digital, could be any, anything at all, what would your message be and why? Yeah, I probably didn't answer it this way in January, but at this stage, I would say be kind. You know, I think there are lots of vulnerable people. There are people that are hurting. 
There are people that are uncertain. And I think leaders need to be kind. And uh, kindness is one of those things that doesn't necessarily mean you're soft on things. You can be very hard on issues. You'd be tough on making good decisions. But thinking about kindness, caring about others, you know, in the end, these relationships really matter. You know, when you kind of boil away all the, the frills and the extras that we worry about all the time, you know, really these relationships are the enduring part of life. So I would probably today say, uh, think hard about really being kind. Who's vulnerable? Who needs your help? That's a wonderful message. And relationships are everything. And someone I've had on the show, Ted Rubin, talks about the return on relationships. And that really, the ROR, as he puts it, is really what matters in life, not so much the ROI. And more people focused on on that aspect of life and kindness, then, you know, things would, things would go a lot easier. So, Joel, thank you so much for coming back on the show, not only to discuss this, this wonderful new book, and I'm really excited. I actually just received it yesterday and was started reading it last night. I will be finishing it uh, this weekend. It's really just, there's so many gems in there that are so important. And I would also tell people Father's Day is coming, and this would also be a good book for, for the dads out there as well as as well as the grads. We appreciate you having on. I know this has just been a, a very, very intense time for you, um, certainly continuing teaching. And the road ahead of you, I'm sure, is going to be very interesting. So please stay safe. The soul of America remains strong. And with people like you teaching the leaders of tomorrow, it certainly gives me a lot of hope. I want to also thank the folks over at Resonate Recording who will be editing and turning this around very quickly so we can get this out. And also the folks over at Fortier, to Lisa, to, to Ashley that have always been so helpful in, 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 in making this work out. And as always, remember when it comes to saving for your future, and you will have a wonderful future, pay yourself first. Mm-hmm.